PR Pro Cannabis Media. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another edition of In the Weeds with Jimmy Young. Every week, we look for those movers and shakers in the world of cannabis, in business especially, and seek them out. And we are so happy to welcome one in from the other coast. For the most pe people know that you know we're based outside of Boston on the East Coast. So we're going to head out to the West Coast. And everybody knows I love to continue to connect both coasts. Rob Seacrest, he's the co-founder and... Uh, and president of the Polaris Equity Group and the manager of the Polaris Fund. Rob, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. All right. So let's get right into it a little bit. How in the world did we go from real estate into cannabis real estate? And is that still the focus of your fund? Yes, it is the pure focus of our fund. And um, we are a we, we've always been an asset-based lender. We've originated more than 5,000 transactions for more than $5 billion. Our local congressman was Dana Robacher. And so Dana Robacher is a friend and we support him locally. Yep. And when he passed the Robacher Blumenauer Amendment at the time, we realized this was the largest newly created asset class to lend on in the country. And so we analyzed the sector and we realized we had the skill set to do it. So. By 2016, we started originating transactions and we became the first dedicated lender to the sector. Um, and we launched the Polaris uh, Fund in 2018 and uh, we became a private mortgage rate in 2020. And today we've done 72 transactions for more than $450 million. Wow, that's that's impressive numbers. And you rattled those right off. Uh, that's very good. It's like a batting average, I think. Uh, so Rob, uh, is the everything I hear about the markets and investment markets in the cannabis space is it slowed down? Okay, over the last six months, you know, the stock market took a hit, and we pick a crisis, any crisis. We got wars, we got climates, we've got disease. How uh, how much, in your opinion, again, an opinion here, um, as you look at the space, is there still activity in the cannabis uh, investment space? So I like to do. To differentiate the cannabis sector. So most people talk about it from the cannabis operator side, investing in the brands. And typically they're talking about the, public, the, the, the equity markets. We are a lender. And so our uh, investment people, when people invest with us, we're lending capital and it's secured by real estate. And then the owners of those properties are our borrowers then have cannabis use tenants. And those tenants, um, the, you know, their values going up and down are not necessarily a reflection of them making the lease payment on that. So our ability to raise capital has remained consistent, but it's a different risk profile. We're secured by real estate. We have monthly distributions. It's, it's not a, uh, you know, buy and hold for 10 years or whatever it might be for a speculative brand in this sector. We are making monthly distributions. We're secured by enormous amounts of equity, and it's a it's a it's a different uh, spectrum of, of investment. Gotcha. Um, one of the things that you just mentioned, and I I will admit, I watched the interview with Josh Kincaid, the Talking Hedge. He's our Washington State correspondent. You did it two years ago, and I did hear a lot of talk about having tenant improvements and how that makes it more appealing. Can you walk me through a little bit about what you mean by tenant improvements? And are you involved with a construction company too, that I would guess would be tied to that? Sure. So we're only the lender and 
as this as this specialty use asset class became available, cannabis, mm -hmm. cannabis requires enormous uh, capital improvements to the property, whether it exists already or is going to be ground up. And those can be ground up construction and then tenant improvements for that borrower and equipment. And this specialty use asset class is most similar to cold storage, data centers, or lab space. And so all those types of sectors mean that the amount of, of, of improvements that are required to bring in these specialty use tenants, which drive much higher lease rates than a typical tenant, are, are enormous amounts of capital. And sometimes the improvements in the equipment can be more than the value uh, of the building purchase itself. And so our, our specialty has been uh, asset-based lending was value-add lending, where we're doing construction loans, which it's either ground-up construction, tenant improvements, or repositioning of that asset to make it more valuable. And so every single cannabis transaction in the beginning needed that. Now, today, we also have a fully stabilized product, loan product, that we can reduce a borrower's rate so that once they're cash flowing, they can step down from a construction loan. Um, as we all know, uh, interest rates are going up. Everybody's talking about inflation. Um is this impacting the real estate market too at all? What do you what you what do you think about what's going on with that? So in in broad, it's affecting the real estate market uh, enormously because the cost of the, of borrowing is going up. For for us, we raise our our capital internally, so we're not tied to um, the external markets. Um, but our investors, uh, if if what yield that we were able to give them. Uh, two years ago um, is now not the same and they can get that from government bonds or, or, or municipal bonds or something, our rate needs to go up as well. So our loans are tied to floating rates as well. So as the market moves, our rates will, will continue, will go up with the, with what's happening out there as well. Do you have to work harder now, Rob, basically to get the same results or better results? Um, well, we're always working extremely hard. Um, in the beginning, it was only three of us and now it's 15. Um, but there is enormous challenges in working hard all the time in raising capital and originating. Um, but the velocity of loans has not slowed down. The velocity of capital has not slowed down in the sector that we're in. And I think people are finding that we're a safe bet. We have no volatility of our share price because we're not publicly traded and we're secured. So you can come and get uh, put money here and have a safe investment with us. In some scenarios, we have equity kickers in some of these transactions, so you are getting some of that exposure, but you're in a different, a completely different risk category. Gotcha. And uh, and again, I I apologize. I'm not really as well versed in this world as I would like to. I have friends. I actually rely on my friends to explain it to me. So uh, I appreciate you uh, allowing me to perhaps. Uh, bring it down to the level that those that are starting to get into the cannabis industry, perhaps for the first time, you know, this is a whole new world for everybody, isn't it? And how challenging has that been when you have to educate people about exactly what you're doing in this space? It's enormously challenging. We had about 250 investors, probably up to a million dollars a piece of commitments to us prior to coming to cannabis. And we only got 10% of them to come this direction. And these are people that we had decades of long uh, relationships and made lots and lots of money for. And, and it's truly an educational, uh, uh, you know, all we do is educate our borrowers and our investors and really try to explain the nuances of the space. And for somebody that's just trying to get into the sector and start uh, investing in the sector, to take a bet on one company and hope that that one pays off if you went in uh, on, on equity prior to going public is, 
is is you don't know anything about cannabis. So how do you how do you even underwrite that? And there hasn't there's not even enough metrics of data to understand the sector. Now today that's starting to change, but you know for for an investor with us, you have a you have lots and lots. We've underwritten two thousand transactions. We funded seventy two, and we've had half of those pay off. And we've taken all the data from all those two thousand of transactions and aggregated to know from the real estate side, what is the true metrics for the borrowers and what's really happening? We've seen more data than anybody in the entire country, probably the world, for understanding what are the metrics for these properties and how they should look. And we've also built our own proprietary database to look at it from the real estate side. We know where every single licensed operator is in the entire country, what kind of license they have, who owns it, and where are they situated in the country. Yeah, it's uh, <laughs> it's a challenge out there in the cannabis space because the stigma alone, the education that all of us who are in it have to explain to people. And and I don't want to dumb it down because there's so much re- uh, science and research that's driving the green rush towards investment in, in this country. Um, can you give me an example? I, again, you don't have to. Of, of fighting a stigma or, or an example of something that, you know, the only reason why you were, you know, so you had to change a plan, perhaps because it was cannabis related. Well, um, our banking, uh, our own bank that we had a, a, a massive relationship with tens and tens of millions of dollars, uh, probably 40 accounts. And, um, you know, all of our borrowers are paying to us every month. Um, didn't even call us, didn't even send us registered mail. Um, we got a regular mail letter that said that your bank account's being closed in 30 days. And, you know, so it affects us and, and everybody else. And we had to, to move to a cannabis friendly, federally chartered bank. Um, but imagine having all those borrowers paying paying us. And that particular bank, by the way, had a very large percentage of our borrowers were coming from their bank. So that means that that, they're, that they're, whatever they're worried about, they're deeper than they think. Yeah, exactly. And, and again, making an example, I, I, I see this happening all the time. People are now targeting, I believe, uh, people in the cannabis space uh, for you know, the fact they know that oh, some of the people that got in early are making a lot of money. But I got to tell you, from what I hear from uh, dispensary owners, some of the ancillary companies, it the margins are shrinking. It's a very it's a very small uh, window, I think, for the margins, especially for those that are plant touching because of the high taxes, the high compliance. California is a mess, isn't it, Rob? Yeah. So um, there's a, there's money to be made. Yeah. Uh, there's about 20 to 25 billion that's going to roll through the country this year in gross revenue. How that gets distributed throughout the year to which operators and which brands might change, more are going to become efficient. And what California is, is the largest market in the world under one compliance. It's also the largest market with the most easily replaceable tenants for our borrowers. And, and contrary to what a lot of people know uh, about California or hearing about California, our borrowers and our portfolio, and especially the California portfolio, are all performing to uh, to and the metrics that are that we're pulling from them. They're 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 able to sustain themselves. And the reason that that's the case is that everybody talks about the California market in a very broad sense. The California market is is imploding. Well, that's primarily the outdoor wholesale market. And what's happened is you've gone from from uh, illegal operators that transition, and those were outdoor farms that transitioned to the legal market and tried to make it work. And they started selling wholesale to brands that had no, no cultivation of their own. 
Well, those brands had made such a large investment in their brand that they couldn't afford to have the price volatility or even no inventory from these wholesalers. So the brands continue to make their own investment in their own cultivation. And so the market for wholesales is dried up. And so all of our borrowers are owner users where they're selling or they're, they're vertically integrated where they're selling to themselves. So they've eliminated that and they've picked up the margin there. So the market shifting what you hear and what's happening in, Mar in California is much more nuanced than you believe now. There are going to be challenges and struggles in every market, but any emerging market is going to have those cycles. And there's going to be other people that figure it out more efficiently, and it's all going to work itself out. Now, when you have government get involved, it typically takes a lot longer because nobody asks, and then what, when they announce a policy, and especially when you have very little to no enforcement. So it'll shake out. Um, I believe that the California market will will do well in, in the long run, but I think that it's a challenge with the compliance and people are definitely not making what they thought they would make. And especially when you have a dearth of capital that came in and people were purely going for market share as opposed to going for profitability and they burned up all their money um, on trying to get market share. Now they have no money to op for operational when things got tighter. And so that was the biggest mistake that we've seen across the board. It happened in Canada and it happened here. And so those, those operators that, that were trying to buy market share, selling below market costs to try to get their brand up so that they could say that they've got the market, are, it's not sustainable at that. And so if you can't, don't have a product that people are willing to buy at, at a price that, they, that the company can sustain themselves, that company's not gonna stay in business. There's another market that's emerging on the East Coast and I was just in the capital of the Empire State in New York. Uh, how do you view what's going to happen in New York over the next five years as that part of the industry, that area starts to ramp up its own uh, challenges and its own its own market? I mean, they're going to they're going to have verticals. They're going to have growing. They're going to have a lot of social equity applicants in with licenses. Uh where do you think that New York markets, what do you think is going to happen there? That's really what I'm asking. <laughs> so all of these new markets go through that phase, whether they're unlimited license or limited license, and they all have a, 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 a strategy that they think is going to work work best. And, and, and hopefully it's going to be refined and get better and better, but it's to be determined. For us as a lender, we don't try to um, guess on what's going to happen in the market until the, the regs are written and, and there's the comment period is ended and we know what the laws are. So we don't have that luxury of being pure equity where we can do speculative investments. So we can only um, lend when we know what the rules are going to be and we can, we can write and underwrite that transaction. So for us, we just look at the entire country as, as the transactions flow to us, we look what is the best, most experienced offer, operator, strongest sponsor, what's the best transaction the, that is the best fit for our fund and the least risk for our fund? And that's how we look at things. We're not trying to put a flag in each state to say, hey, we got market share there. That is not our goal. We are willing to go anywhere in the country that the deal looks looks good and, and that makes sense with our underwriting. Yeah. Hey, do you ever see a wholesale market, international wholesale market for hemp or, or cannabis? Um. Future. So the hemp is, is a whole different category because that doesn't have any any legal constraints. And that, that I think is a is a is a, an amazing product and, and hempcrete and all those things are something that we're very interested in just as, as partners, but yep. we don't have any anything active in that and we can't be in that space. 
for for the U.S. to export, um, there are DEA licensed facilities that can export for research. Um, they can cross state lines, and I don't think a whole lot of people know that. But to export at scale, you need to typically be GMP certified, which there are several facilities in this country that are already set and ready to go there. But you also have to think about um, the countries that you're importing to, the lead time from when you when you file that paper, paperwork to export and how long it takes to get on the shelf at the, at the dispensary, that product where it's going and how stale is that product gonna be? And can they develop that product domestically? We've already been over to Europe this 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 season or this this last summer, and and we were looking at at over there and seeing what's going on. And we actually do think that the European market is going to primarily be based on importation, just because it's so expensive. You can't even get power in that country uh, to to heat your homes, let alone be able to run a facility. It's just insane. So so I think that uh, other countries that don't have the same constraints on employment, on uh, electricity and ESG and all this stuff, as long as they're GMP certified, they're gonna be able to come in. So I, we're, we're really curious how the European Union and different uh, countries in there are going to be able to compete about, against imports when they're trying to develop their own domestic market. And that's uh, we haven't been able to answer that question yet. Um, each market has had some sub variances to it um, that that make it a little bit unique, but it's a, it's an interesting play. I was going to say, someone, I'm guessing you look at a lot of Excel files, right? A lot of the numbers, right? A lot of metrics. You've used the word metrics, by the way, about 40 times in the first 20 minutes. Okay. I get it. Okay. <laughs> so I, I don't get metrics, by the way. I understand how important it is to you. And what I want to ask you is, what is a key metric that you look for that you see on a somewhat regular basis and say, this is the kind of thing we're looking for. We want to see that that the transaction will ultimately be able to sustain itself in a profitable way. And it's an equitable transaction to all parties. If it's not equitable, it's not worth going in. We don't want to be into a transaction where we got all, all the benefit and left the, the borrower high and dry. It needs to be an equal balance there. So we want to see the right balance of equity from the borrower, the right balance of, of cost base uh, from, from our capital side that we have to put out there. And we need to see that that transaction has the possibility to sustain itself and, and perform on its own, that we're not setting that person up for failure because they don't know all those numbers. They don't know those metrics. They only have their own internal projections, or maybe they've worked on five or 10 projects, but they haven't seen 2000 projects. So is there more risk involved on the plant touching or the ancillary, perhaps even the growing, well, plant touching is growing, but um, you got on some retail, plant touching, ancillary products like containers and all the packaging material and all the, the stuff that the, um, the retailers have to buy in order to go in business. So um, it depends on how you want to categorize risk. So I think it's more risky to be on the ancillary side to cannabis because yeah. there's no barriers of entry. And so anybody can come wipe you out. Um, and, you know, if you have a box box packaging company that's ancillary to the cannabis sector, you actually have, I think, disproportionate exposure because most of your tenants or sorry, your your um, accounts payable are coming from people that can't don't have sustainable cash flows yet. So that that is, in my opinion, significantly more risky as opposed to being in the cannabis sector. Yes, it's difficult to do the compliance, but all these difficulties make it more difficult barriers of entry to get in there. 
and you need to understand how to position yourself. So I think about when you think about risk, you need to think about it in a, in a more nuanced uh, look at it. So for us, we believe that, that having an asset and, and securing an asset and having protective equity and personal and corporate guarantees from our borrowers de-risks it as much as possible. So that's how we got comfortable being in the space. And I think for the equity investors for these companies that are the cannabis uh, tenants, I think that investors should be looking at this as being a, a long horizon and don't look for short-term gains. It'll, this market is going to grow to probably 45 billion in the next five years or so of gross revenue. And you should be looking at the long-term and just looking to know that you're in a, in a market that is going to eventually double its size and maybe even go more than that. And you wanna pick the right horses if you can, if you have that information, but if you're not an expert in the sector and you're just buying stocks, it's too new. It's 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 not. It's barely an emerging industry. There's no data to even look at to make comparables. Right. That's right. Oh no. And and you mentioned um, our our federal our friends the federal government. I just want to throw this out there. You think they knew what they were doing when they passed that farm bill in 2018 and opened up this Pandora's box for hemp? I don't think the government ever knows what they're doing. Uh, <laughs> Because anytime government does something, there's a negative consequence from it. Whatever benefit there might be, there's an there's an offset. And so, right. I I think that nobody ever thinks it all the way through, and and you can't possibly know all the ramifications when you're writing something because you don't even, the laws haven't been been written yet, or or the comment period, which is means where they solidify because the the bill was too broad, and now they have to get the, the get it nuanced so that it can be implemented. So, um, I I. That one is more complicated. I, I actually know less about that one because it's more applicable to hemp and we don't really do anything with hemp. Um, yep. But uh, I think the Rohrbacher-Blumenauer Amendment is one of the, the, it's, I believe, the most consequential legislation ever written. And nobody really talks about or focuses on that. That one defunded the, the Department of Justice from any, from any prosecution of a cannabis-related right. business. So this gave us the ability to enter the sector and, and not be worried that our borrower's tenants could be prosecuted and then not be able to replace another tenant because they could be prosecuted too. So, can it, so the federal government has already been defunded from any prosecution. So that is a massive one that we have. The two I'd like to see is 280E. Um, uh, you know, removed from from cannabis uh, legal cannabis businesses and in, in states that are already illegal. And the other one I'd like to see is is the ability to process uh, uh, cannabis transactions on credit cards, so we don't get the cash buildup at those dispensaries. And there's a, a couple of companies out there that have tried that, and some have had worse luck than others. Let's just say I don't think anybody's got it right yet, but they're, they're out there. They've tried to make it as, as seamless as possible. For uh, at least I'm talking strictly in the Massachusetts area. You know, we're four years into adult use here. Um, 2013 was the medical program. So, you know, as do you view the math? How do you view the Massachusetts market right now? So, so again, we don't have we don't pick winners and, and losers from yep. markets. We're we're looking at who how experienced is this operator? Is this their you know? It, have they already got an existing operation and they're expanding? Were they in another state and now they're coming here? Um, and, and how strong of a sponsor? How much cash do they have? How much how much depth do they have to to for a learning curve as they are mo moving through this emerging industry and as the laws and, and the regulations sometimes change after the fact? Yeah, how, can you give me a, a variety of different typical terms to loans and um, how it's changed uh, or does it change uh, from 
um, like four years ago to where it is now? So um, our pro, so we have two loan products. We have our value add construction loan product. We lend up to 60% of the total cost basis. So if that would include the purchase price of the real estate, the construction cost or tenant improvement cost and the equipment. So all of that would be 100%. We'll go up to 60% of that. So you would need to come into 40% of that on that product. That product is typically an 18 month term and it's typically in the mid teens interest only. But that, trans that particular transaction is made as a construction loan to process an indefinite amount of draws. And we can fund that draw from once it's approved within 72 hours. That is massive in this industry. You want to get the facility built as quickly as possible. And our other fully stabilized loan product is typically a five-year term. And that's in the low double digits um, for that particular loan, loan product. This, this may be a simplified question for somebody that um, this, this type of discussion is a little above my pay grade, if you will, and I appreciate it, um, kind of playing along with me. Can you explain the difference between equity financing and debt financing? Uh, because a lot of people in the industry I know are looking at both of those. So financing is always going to be debt. So okay. um, I'm trying to maybe figure out what what, what what financing really is doing is reducing the amount of equity that you have to go out and raise. So if you if you didn't have us to be a lender, you would have had to put 100% of equity up to do the build, the purchase, the build and the equipment. So in, in, the, in the beginning of the business or when you're starting that operation, that would be the worst possible time to raise the, the, the capital. So you're because you're, you can't get the, the, the best valuation. You, it would be better if you had the facility completed and cash flowing. So we're reducing that, that by 60%. Now, I think what you might be referring to, I'm just guessing, is there's two types of lending out there. There is asset-based lending for, for typically for real estate, and then there's corporate lending where you're lending to the corporation like a cure relief at 8%. That right. is a totally different type of loan and you're lending off of their equity value. And so that they're basically pledging their stock uh, and, and all their assets for the collateral of that loan. Whereas opposed to that collateral could go up and down at the value of that, of that package. Ours is based just on the real estate and yes, it could go up and down, but the, the amount of movement of a real estate asset is so infinitesimal relative to a stock. Gotcha. Hey, um, you mentioned the Safe Banking Act. We all know that it's passed seven times in the U.S. House of Representatives, and and supposedly it's it's being talked about anyway in the U.S. Senate. Um, there's all sorts of scuttlebutt that comes out of the various uh, newsletters that we all follow in the in the industry, and uh, now they're talking about a Safe Banking Act plus uh, act because they know they'll never get the CAO bill passed. Certainly not legalization. Um, you mentioned the safe banking, you mentioned 280E. Besides that, is there any other uh, elements of that plus package you'd like to see happen uh, in, in the next, you know, they're talking, they're still talking about this year, but, you know, I'm not the most confident with what's going on in Washington, D.C. these days. So broadly, my position is, and it's been this way since prior to this administration coming in, um, uh, in, in, and I said prior to the administration coming in, if they're pro-cannabis, you'll see on day one that they'll reinstate the coal memo, which they didn't do. So I think that was the first tell. Um, so they're not driving the industry from, a, from a, the executive office. Um, regarding Congress, it doesn't matter what the House does. They're always going to pass. That's easy peasy. It's the Senate that you need the 60, 70, 60 votes to get through the, the filibuster. 
uh, or you're going to have to get it through reconciliation with a, with a, uh, a budget. And I, I just don't see that happening. And so my general take on it is, is that the when people talk about cannabis legalization or regulations, they, they, they broadly group two things together, which are separate. There's, there's social justice reform, which is more based towards individuals in trying to right the wrongs and decriminalize it. Mm-hmm. And then there's the other side that's more towards the business and the regulatory part of it. So more on the business side. And so the, the, the two things I mentioned, 280E and the credit cards, those two things could be a standalone amendment and would pass through in two seconds through the Senate. But the Democrats are not willing to let those go through without putting on significant social equity reform on it. And that's where you're, I think that both parties are never going to come together to have enough consensus to get anything passed because of the disparity between those two issues. And so that is where I think that I don't see it happening within this administration at all. And I think that generally, if it was going to happen, it's typically going to be in a new administration where you have the executive branch and control of the House and the Senate all contemporaneously. But even then, cannabis in reality is a small small thing going on. And I just don't see a new administration blowing out their political capital on something that's only maybe $100 billion at the time when they're probably want to do, you know, free housing for everybody in the country or free education for everybody or whatever it might be, which are great things to do, but they're going to want to push something that's massive and not cannabis. Both parties are, are pro cannabis. So it doesn't, nobody's voting one way or the other on cannabis. It's called a non-voter issue. Yeah. It, it's, it's not a good time. I don't think uh, if you really want to see change happen on anything except a crisis, in but Washington, D.C. If I could just add to it, I, I do see one path through that could happen fairly fairly quickly. And this would be the way that that I believe that it could it probably might happen. I don't have any insight, but if you want something to get pushed through, you need somebody to drive that and put pressure on the legislators. And so you need a, a company or a group that is so powerful that they say to each of the senators, they say, you either support this bill and, and doing this, or we're going to run somebody against you. And so if it's somebody with enough gunpowder, you know, like an Amazon or a huge company that has the gunpowder and the benefit would be so big for them for it to happen. In that scenario, it could change very quickly because they don't even need to actually run somebody against them. They just need to tell them that they're going to do it. And so you are you get an alignment pretty quickly. That's that's the more quicker path that it, that it could happen. But, uh, you know, there's no indicators that that's happening other than, you know, Amazon did say that they're not, uh, you know, uh, testing. They're not going to fire their workers if they test if they test positive, as long as they're not um, high while they're at work. Um, would that be a company that maybe has uh, what they refer to as big pharma? Because that's a yeah. huge so fear in this industry. Yeah, big pharma, big tech, any of these groups could make that move that needle. And I think that that's more where you're going to get consensus because in reality, politicians only care about power for the next election because right. they, fi- they figure if they lose power, then they can't implement change. So you've got to win the war to be able to you know, to be able to, to put out the policy. So they're only fo- focused on the most nearest term and not necessarily the benefit of the constituents. Which really drives me nuts because it's the constituents who put them there, okay? It, it, and 
that you know isn't that supposed to be how a we're not a true democracy i know that but you know we'd like to get back to at least better representation of our uh for our people down there and our, our u.s senate and i'll say this everybody knows i'm from massachusetts it doesn't look like our country it yeah. doesn't look the people that are in the senate do not look like you know, members of the united states of america right right now in 2022 and that really bothers me it really does it, it we are in a representative democracy and i think most people don't understand what the word representative is before democracy but you know, it the, the representatives do not seem to reflect the values of the majority of the people that voted, um, uh, and and that's that's where the disconnect is. Now, remember, there's a lot of different things that 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 uh, district or that state might might have put in power there, and so you're not always going to get perfect alignment of the representation there. But it does seem that we've gotten so far from representing at least the majority in each of these states. Yeah. And it, it's it's a shame. Look, uh, there's a one question. Um, Henry Robertson from Matteo did a great job. I want to give him a, a shout out. Matteo Communications, I think, is really the most active PR company that I see on the East Coast. Certainly. Let's not talk about the West Coast, the East Coast for sure. Um, here's a great question. Why it's not a good time for cannabis related businesses to sell off a lot of equity to fund their project? Why? Well, you're, you're at one of the lowest valuations right now. So um, it, it not only is the the the, t the the cannabis markets down, but then you have the the, the additional uh, issue of the volatility of the stock market, the unknown what's happening in inflation. So this is is definitely not a place. If I I think that most cannabis, well, I shouldn't say most. A lot of cannabis companies are going to do well in the long run. And so if you're able to be a long time holder and if you truly believe in that com company and you've done your due diligence and you've become as much of an expert as you can or you're following experts in the in this sector and you believe that you found that right company, then I would be dollar cost averaging. Um, you're you're able to pick up, uh, you know, additional shares at such a discounted rate that look at this as a five to 10 year hold. If you can weather that, you're going to have a growth stock over time. It's it's Is there a better place to put money? I don't know. I don't know what stocks that you're in, but I think that there's always still going to be companies that are going to do well. And there's going to be ones that fail. It's just the normal of all the business. That's, that's how our, our capitalism works. Right. Hey, uh, Rob Seacrest, uh, co-founder, president of the Polaris Equity Group. I'm going to make you the cannabis czar. <laughs> okay. okay, we're good. It's hypothetical here. We're, you know, I think we've had a great conversation. I, I think it's been terrific. I've learned quite a bit, which I appreciate. Um, how, what would you like to see? Is there a time frame? Is there a, is there a model out there that you think would be fair and also uh, continue? Uh, slow growth in this uh, entity because we're still learning quite a bit more about this product than we've ever known. Correct? I, yes. So there's a lot packed in there. Um, I believe that the most broadly to answer your question, um, I believe that you just, I think that the federal government at this point, the genie is so far out of the bottle, there's no way to put it back in. And I believe that the, the federal government should follow the States Act basic ideology where Whatever the state has agreed to do within its within its state for its its voters for its population is going to be what the federal government uh, approves. However, I do want to see 280E and the credit cards, and I want to I want to see some criminal justice reform 
some some of those things. I think that the criminal justice reform should still probably be by the state and what they're saying. So I think we people have relied on the federal government way too much and it needs to go back down to the states. That's how the, the constitution was written. That's how it was supposed to be. It's become disproportionate to have somebody leading from a place that doesn't live in the state that represents it. It's the worst representative democracy you could possibly have. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I'm really glad you brought up the, um, the Cole memo uh, because the timing of that when Mr. Sessions, when he was there, uh, who did that, I saw the impact it had on social media, especially and community guidelines. And a lot of people were freaked out and had YouTube channels with hundreds of thousands of followers. There's actually one company in California that this happened to. They pulled the plug with no warning with like 250,000 uh, subscribers to their work. And all they were doing was teaching the public. Mm -hmm. And, and you know, and this, do our social media platforms have too much power because the consumer dictates pretty much where they get their stuff from, how they get it and when they get it. Just opinion. Yeah, that that's a whole nother uh, hour. You know, that, that, that's, a, that's a whole nother hour. Um, I do think, you know, you have one side that they're that they're public um, and they should be able to decide what, what goes on their platform. And it, but the problem is, is that if you're going to take that stance and you can hide behind not being prosecuted for misinformation on your own platform, I forget what it's called. Uh, Two thirty. There's there's some some bill right. that that, yep. that uh, social media platforms are not liable, and so right. you can't have it both ways. And right. so you either have to remove one, or you have to uh, you know you make it so they can be sued, or you have to say that look, this is this is a this is the the town square, and that yes, it's, you got to treat it like a uh, a regulatory regulated entity, like a, a publicly traded power uh, you know uh, power company for uh, Southern California or something like yeah. that. Right. And, you know, the, the social media companies grew so fast. Self-policing didn't work. And, you know, the FCC existed when television and radio started. You actually had to apply for licenses. And there were, forget the community guidelines. If you wanted to broadcast, you could do this. Now, with access to the Internet, everybody's a broadcaster. And it is a total free-for-all out there with misinformation and information and self-policing. And I... Uh, I don't know. I came along with a great time for a cannabis and a media company. Don't you think, Rob? Yeah, yeah. You know, I think that um, I I think everybody needs to develop their own confidence in their own news sources, whether it's a news channel or an individual. And over time, they will build or lose that credibility. And so in that thinking process, that's the way it's supposed to work. We have people that have died for this country to have the right to have free speech and you have to protect it both ways. There's times where people are going to say things you don't like and whether it's misinformation or just hate speech or whatever it is, you'd let that go and don't censor any of it. And what naturally evolves is that nobody follows those people or, or the people that follow those people are, are, are it's, it's, that's, I think how it, sh it should should work its way out. But I think that government has, feels that people don't have the ability to discern if if this is a good message or a bad message. And the problem is, is that government it, trying to shape that might be done with good intentions, but it might have shaped it the way that they thought was what was right. And that's a problem, too.
Yeah. Hey, you know what? We're not going to solve all the uh, the, the uh, world's problems in a couple of uh, minutes in an interview. But uh, Rob, you've really educated me so much. Rob Seacrest from the Polaris Equity Group. If people are interested in finding out about your fund, especially, I've already been online. Why don't you give yourself a little plug how people can find out about you? Yeah. So you can go to our website, PolarisEquityGroup.com. It's spelled differently, P-E-L-O-R-U-S. It's a navigation instrument, just so you know. Um, but the quickest way is you can just email us at IR for investor relations at PolarisEquityGroup.com. And uh, you can search to get the right spelling of that. Um, and we look forward to speaking with you. All right. Well, I enjoyed speaking with you, Rob Seacrest. I hope you'll continue to follow, like, and subscribe to some of the stuff that we're producing on a regular basis out of our studios here outside of Boston. But for now, that's going to wrap up In the Weeds with Jimmy Young. And remember, it's a whole new world of weed out there. Use it responsibly. Hey. You want to grow your own plants? Check out Style Lighting's Grow Kit. It has everything you need to become an expert home grower and bring the power of the sun indoors. Style Lighting uses TCP's high-powered commercial LEDs that deliver twice the output in the market. The Grow Kit has a grow bag, a timer, chains to hang the light, and of course the best in the business lighting system by TCP. Check out stylelighting.shop for more information. Weed Talk and In the Weeds are two productions of pro-cannabis media supported by Revolutionary Clinics, one of the top medical cannabis dispensaries in the Massachusetts area, now with three locations in Greater Boston, two in Cambridge, and one on Broadway in Somerville. Rev Clinics has a patient-first mission. They will customize your needs as a medical patient with the proper titration and combination of strains, flavors, and products. Rev Clinics, where the patient comes first.